Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hello, it is Wednesday night, and that means we are right here with you for Friends and Fiction. We have an amazing evening ahead of us, so let's get started. I'm Kristen Harmel. I'm Christy Woodson Harvey. And Patty's muted. <laughs> and I am the tech savvy one. I am Patty Callahan Henry. I'm like, why isn't Barry introducing herself? I'm Patty Callahan Henry. Hi, Mary Kay Andrews. And this is Friends in Fiction, Millions of Tech Problems, Four New York Times <laughs> Best-Selling Authors, Endless Stories to Support Independent Bookstores, Authors, and Librarians. Tonight, we'll be talking with best-selling best authors Tia Williams and TJ Newman, both of whom had huge hit books in 2021 that are brand new in paperback right now. We'll also be talking in the after show about the upcoming 2023 books by the four of us, so make sure to stick around for that. But before we get rolling, we have to raise a glass to Mary Kay Andrews for staying on the New York Times bestseller list for the third week third in a row with your film records. I don't, I, my husband apparently fell down on the job. He was my, stu my steward. I don't know. <laughs> come on, Mr. MKA, where's the champagne? Where's the Exactly. <laughs> so we'd also like to give a special welcome tonight to those of you attending the U.S. Book Show, especially our librarian and bookseller friends and our friends at Publishers Weekly who put the show together. We talk a lot on Friends in Fiction about how important independent booksellers are to us as authors and as readers, because when we started Friends in Fiction at the beginning of the pandemic, pandemic, one of our main concerns was for indie booksellers who'd had to close their doors. But just as important in our development as readers and writers are libraries and librarians. And that's just one of the many reasons why when we were thinking, hmm, who can we partner <laughs> with for our podcast? We had a Friends in Fiction podcast that was separate than the show, and we wanted to grow it. So we asked, Ron Block, a librarian who you just met and branch manager for the Cuyahoga County Public Library System. I'm gonna say that fast. The Cuyahoga <laughs> County Public Library System, one of the, the number one, one of the number one systems in the country in Ohio to join us. Ron, like so many librarians across the country, has a very deep passion for books and has his finger on the pulse of what readers are reading. And of course, now he's the host of our Friends and Fiction Writer's Block, get it? Ron Block, Writer's Block <laughs> podcast. Thank you to MKA. And it features a new episode every single Friday. And the way it's different than the show is that we don't just talk fiction on there. We talk to so anybody 
that has to do with publishing, writing, other librarians, songwriters, behind the scenes, librarians, booksellers, editors, agents. So anything to do with this magical world shows up on our podcast on Fridays. Yeah. And I know we all have such fond memories of libraries growing mm -hmm. up. Yeah. I, you know, I can remember my mother hurting all five of her children, including me, mm -hmm. onto the bookmobile when it made its monthly stop at the shopping center near our house. We didn't have a lot of money for books, but after the six of us, including my mom, checked out the maximum number of books allowed, the tires on that <laughs> rose by a couple of inches. Oh. I love oh gosh, that. I have the best memories of the library. We used to go every single week. And I remember being in the fourth grade, which is funny because that's how old my son is now. But um, I was like in the stacks and we were kind of in a hurry and I was looking for a book to take on vacation. And we were going to be gone for a few days and I just wanted to take one book. So I was looking for a big one. And I remember seeing a spine that said a tree grows in Brooklyn. And I remember consciously thinking a book about a tree, like how is it that big? It seems kind of boring, but like, okay, whatever, like I'll try it. Um, and of course, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn is like my all-time favorite book. I think I've read it every year since. But um, I was the same age as Francie Nolan in that book the first time that I read it. And we were these little girls from totally, totally different worlds um, in totally different time periods. But we were thinking about the same things and wondering about the same things about our lives. And I think all these years later, I can look back and realize that that's when I really learned the power of story and how it connects us through time and space and makes us understand worlds that we'll never be a part of. Yeah. I remember being in middle school, being the new kid for the fourth year in a row and not knowing what to do with myself during lunch hour or free period and hiding in the library because the library was my sanctuary. Yeah. And in many ways it still is. And of course, I remember the summers spent checking out the max number of books <laughs> and carrying home that bag of possibilities. Oh, bag of possibilities. possibilities. I love that. That's so true. So, you know, libraries are so much more than places to find books. They're places to gather, to access local services, to vote, to connect to the internet, and to find community. So to all of you librarians out there tonight, especially to our very own Ron Block, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Yeah, thank you. And we'll be talking to Tia and TJ about their love of libraries too. In the meantime, I know you heard a little bit at the front end, but have you heard about the four of us being, well, actually it's the six of us, because Meg and Ron are with us. We are on the road together. We had the most amazing time on the Jersey Shore last week. So amazing. And we got to meet so many of you. We would hear your name, we'd be like, I know you, I know you, but we had never met in person. And we have one event left this season, a final chance to see us all together this summer. We are having a luncheon event on July 21st in Rehoboth <laughs> Beach, Delaware. We really hope if you're anywhere near or far that you can join us on the road for this big Friends in Fiction live celebration. And don't forget now, as you know, we continue to encourage you to support indie booksellers when and where you can. And one way to do that is to visit our own friendsinfictionbookshop.org page where you can find Tia's books, TJ's books, and books by the four of us and our past guests at a discount. 
All right. Now I am so excited to get going because we have two great guests tonight. So let us welcome the first of our two guests, the amazing Tia Williams. Tia began her career as a magazine beauty editor, working her way up the mastheads of several publications, including Elle, Glamour, and Essence. She also pioneered the beauty blog industry with her award-winning, long-running site, Shake Your Beauty. I love, I love it. I love that. <laughs> Her novel, The Perfect Find, won the African American Literary Award for Best Fiction in 2016. It also received rave reviews in the Washington Post, Essence, Cosmopolitan, and more. Gabrielle Union stars in the Netflix adaptation coming soon. I'm so envious. I know. I want to hate her, but I just can't. I know. She's <laughs> too nice. I know. Launched in June of last year. His latest novel, Seven Days in June, was a Reese Witherspoon book club pick and an instant New York Times bestseller. Cur- Tia currently works as an editorial director at Estee Lauder Companies, and she lives in Brooklyn with her husband and daughter. Sean, can you bring Tia in? Oh, her hair is fabulous tonight. I was going to say, she's so pretty that that it looked like it was her picture. I know. I know. um, I'm actually talking on my phone and I'm like trying to prop it up because this was a last minute. um, I was on the computer and I'm not super techie and it wasn't connected. So we had some technical difficulties. So your your phone looks great. If I disappear, it's because the phone phone flipped over. Just be like, she's still here. Give her a minute. Right. Exactly. Well, Tia, welcome. We are so happy to have you with us tonight. Can you start off by telling us about Seven Days in June, which is out in paperback in just two weeks? Yeah. Um, So Seven Days in June started with a question. So I was home one Saturday night um, watching Romeo and Juliet with Leo and Claire Danes, as one does. (laughs) And I, it's sort of one of my comfort movies. And I was just watching it. And for the first time, I had this thought that I had never had before. I was like, what would have happened if Romeo and Juliet hadn't died at the end? What if they went their separate ways? Like they had this wild teenage lust fueled, you know, couple days together, went their separate ways and then ran into each other again as like grownups, as 35 year olds. Like who, would they still have that feeling? Would it still be so real? Would it just have been a teenage, you know, a hormonal blip and so that's where seven days in june um was born i so it's the story of these two famous authors who seemingly randomly meet at a literary event and sparks fly but unbeknownst to everyone there they actually know each other because 15 years before when they were seniors in high school they spent seven very romantic days together and um yeah so in the present it takes place in seven days in june in the present and so it's like how are they going to deal with each other and reckon with this big love they had as teenagers it's so good wow (laughs) that's amazing okay so we're going to start with the obvious seven days in june the sexual tension just ripples off the page And you've said before, there's always going to be big love and big sex in my books. And no wonder you write those kinds of stories absolutely masterfully. But I've also read 
that you grew up reading Stephen King. And so did I. Um, whenever I have to give my top five books, I mentioned The Stand and people are like, what? Like, That's how I am with it. It's my favorite book of all time. <laughs> I'm like, if you haven't read The Stand, then you cannot talk to me about it because I love reading. I don't read some of the worst horror, but I'm a big Stephen King fan. So the people Stand always, is like the fiction standard. Like it's genius. Yes, like the storytelling. Yes, genius I, I can. story. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So people are always surprised to hear that about us. And he's not exactly known for his crackling sexual vibes. Um, can you talk? A bit about how you found your way into writing these novels with big love and big sex, as you say. How did you go from those two to this? Yeah, well, so Stephen King is my favorite author. And honestly, like reading his books as an adolescent and, you know, as I got older, it just teaches you everything you need to know about how to tell a tight, good story, period. It doesn't matter what genre you're working in. But I had a, um, it was like a dual obsession. So my mom was obsessed with romance novels. I grew up in the eighties, big paperback romance novel era. And she would keep this stack by the tub in her, in my parents' bathroom. And it was always, the books were really fat because of the steam. Oh, I love it. <laughs> like from, from the tub. And me and my little sisters would sneak in there and read like, you know, at the most inappropriate ages, like we were reading Jude Devereaux and Kathleen Woodowist and, you know. Wow. And then like the contemporary romances too, like Jackie Collins and um, Judith Krantz and Harold Robbins. And, you know, I was like, oh, you have to have sex in a story. Like that's, <laughs> you know, obviously. And know like something about those scenes i don't know if i was a, a particularly horny adolescent i don't know but i was like this is kind of amazing and the skill and i sort of became like a connoisseur of it like i, I could tell when they like a sex scene was written poorly meanwhile I'm like in ninth grade um and never had a boyfriend never you know and i'm just like no that doesn't ring true okay, um, I, just have to, I just have to interrupt for a minute Tia, I just have to interrupt and ask you if you have an old, an all-time favorite, literally steamy <laughs> scene from one of those novels, so that I can go dog ear those pages. Have you ever read *Slow Heat in Heaven* by Sandra Brown? No. no. But Get we we just lost everyone watching the show. They like all ran off to go get it. Everybody's on bookshop.org, you know, downloading it. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And to combine that with it, I'm just not, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I think that anytime we write novels, people look for us in the stories as the authors, especially people who know us in real life. And here's the thing, though. Seven Days in June is about a novelist who writes sexy books and lives in New York with her daughter, which is exactly what you are. <laughs> People made assumptions that you're secretly writing about yourself. And has this complicated your life or people's expectations at all? Have they come to you about it? Well, you know what's funny? The protagonist of Seven Days in June is so incredibly me that I forget that readers don't know me personally, so they don't know that there's so much about it that's my story. So I'll get the, one of the things about Eva is that she has these chronic debilitating daily migraines. 
And so I'll get these DMs and I'll be like, wow, you really described migraines like so viscerally and so real. You had you must have had to do a lot of research. And I'm just like, girl, how much time do you have? Because yeah. I have had, <laughs> it's me. I've had migraines since I was nine years old every single day. Every um, day? Yeah, every day. Every day. Oh, wow. Every oh. Day. Like different, you know, it's at different levels of it, you know, from manageable, like a, a manageable annoyance to the hospital. But yeah, every day. And um, oh, it's okay. We all have something, right? Um, but yeah, so, you know, there's so much of me in that character. When I, when I first started writing Seven Days of June, I was single. I'd been a single mom for 10 years. Um, like Eva, amicable, divorced. My daughter's father lived, you know, I could see him from my window, from the apartment, we share custody, chronic migraines, write sexy books, and hadn't been on a date in years. And I actually started writing the book. Um, when I started, I was like, you know what, I am in such a slump. I don't feel creative. I don't feel sexy. I don't know who would ever love me because all I am is this like, you know, vegetative person who's in pain all the time. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to invent a character who has all of my stuff and moves through it and finds love and happiness and everything. And don't you know that halfway through writing my manuscript, I swiped right on the person who is now my husband. Oh, <laughs> oh awesome. Yeah, so there's something like manifestation. Yeah. Oh, manifesting through novel. I love it. That's amazing. It's kind of cool. Uh, yeah, we're going to have to ask. We've got a list of shit we need you to manifest for us, Tia, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I think it only works if you do it yourself. Like, just you oh. write it down and it'll happen. Okay. All right. I'm okay with that. All right. <laughs> Let's talk about your latest novel that we've just been talking about, Seven Days in June. It was a Reese Witherspoon book club pick and an instant New York Times bestseller. And I um, have totally messed up what I was supposed to ask you. <laughs> oh, one moment. Okay. Here we go. We're back on script. Now. We love the kind of book publishing stories that you have. Somebody who wasn't an overnight success and who, you know, you've really earned it. You know, seven days in June. Yes, it was a Reese pick and it catapults you to another level. But you tell us about the struggle you had with the previous book, The Perfect Fine. Uh, it was definitely a struggle. So I wrote my first novel when I was, I published it in, when I was 25. And then I wrote some YA novels, um, nonfiction, and then I didn't write for a long time. Um, and then came The Perfect Find. Um, and when we were shopping it around in 2015, I was rejected by every single public, every, every single traditional publisher everywhere. And this is coming from, you know, someone who's the beauty director at Glamour yes. and Elle and like these, you know, bylines for years. This is someone who had already been traditionally published. Yeah. And, you know, what was really sad is that, so The Perfect Fine is about um, a fashion editor, a magazine fashion editor who loses her job and has to start over and um, falls in love with a guy half her age. She's 40. <laughs> and um, the feedback I kept getting was, oh, this is so fun, it's so sparkly, it's so sexy and cute. Is there any way you can work in sort of 
some sort of mention about how hard it is to be a black woman in a white profession fashion, or maybe we should change the industry because I don't know how um, believable it is to, to, to have the protagonist be a black editor at a fashion magazine. And I'm like, you're looking at her. Yeah. Wow. I did that. I am that. And yeah, even if I wasn't, why can't we exist there? Like, yeah. you know, um, and it was just really, really frustrating and um, sad because, you know, everything that you hear as, as a black person about um, the industry, it was, it's true. It was true. You know, it's, it's very, it was very monochromatic, very gatekeepy and, Black stories needed to be presented in a very specific way, um, in a way that the publishers felt um, yeah. was 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 most easily marketable. Stories about enslaved people, stories about civil rights, a lot of nonfiction, a lot of you know struggling against oppression. We are not symbols of oppression, so, and we deserve to be to you know live in a delicious story just for the sake of living in a delicious yes. story. Yes. So it really sucked. I finally found like a small, very small publisher. It was almost like self-publishing on my own. And um, yeah, and it ended up being a success. And I don't have Snapchat because I, I still don't know how to use it. I, I think it is so not intuitive. But someone sent me a screenshot of Gabrielle Union Snapchatting it on vacation, like she was reading it on vacation. I died, long story short. <laughs> She's like, I love this. Let's make this a movie. And yeah, so that was the happy awesome. ending for um, uh, The Perfect Fine, which That's I didn't think awesome. would happen. And but now- you, you stuck with it. That's amazing. I mean- yeah. yeah. And so now you're turning seven days in June into a TV series. Any, yes. any um, can you tell us any secrets, Tia? <laughs> I would- tell? But we won't tell anyone else. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I would, but there's nothing to tell yet because we're just now getting started on everything. It's so. exciting now. But, yeah, it's really exciting. I've never worked on a TV show or anything like that. So this is uh, all new. Very thrilling. That's, That's amazing. Awesome. I think we're all grinning because we're just, we all are, like, so happy it's a great for your success. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's the kind well, of story we love to hear and we like and we love to amplify. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think if you really I mean, it sounds so Pollyanna to be like, if you stick with it, it'll happen because you're not guaranteed anything. And there certainly are no, you know, you don't get a trophy for trying. No, you don't. But I yeah. think that if you know, you're a writer, you know when your stuff is good and you know when it sucks, right? Yeah. I knew this was good. And I knew that the feedback would, was unreasonable. And, yeah. you know, you know when you, when you hear good feedback from your agent or an editor and you, you know, work it in and it makes you better. And I knew that what they were yeah. telling me was bullshit. Yeah. And so I just couldn't, in the name of like creative integrity, Oh, I love what that. I had. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. there's just there's just no way. And I knew it was good, and so yeah. I stuck with it. If I didn't know it was good, I might I would have given up. 
because it was devastating to get all those rejections. It's the worst. Well, you wear a lot of, yeah, you wear a lot of hats. I mean, beyond you, you easily, I mean, you're a huge success in so many parts of your life that you easily could have just given up because, you know, as we said, you're the editorial director at Estee Lauder. You've been a beauty editor for IM and L and Glamour and Lucky and Teen People and Essence. And you've written a, a lot of personal pieces for magazines, one that I want to ask you about in a minute. But I think we're all wondering, how do you juggle your other jobs with your role as a writer? And how do you think that your experience in, your, in the corporate beauty world has influenced your writing? Um, so to answer the first question, uh, not well. I am not very good at balancing <laughs> at all. And I have to tell the absolute truth because I feel like it would be anti-woman to pretend that it's easy and it is not. Um, it's not, but you know what? I think that this is, I have not vetted this, you know, through my therapist. This is truly me talking. So take it with a grain of salt. We, I, are, I, we are pretend psychotherapists. So it's, yeah, yeah. it's great. You've come to the right place. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm, this is a circle of trust. So I feel like having this disability, this invisible disability that I've had my whole life has given me something to fight against. It like gives me a chip on my shoulder. Like I'm not going to let this, you know, stop me or end me. And it's the kind of thing like with migraines, if you pack it all up and go to bed, you'll just be in bed for the rest of your life. I never would have done anything. So like you kind of have to keep going, um, putting one foot in front of the other and having all this ambition and having these like stories just burning to get out and, you know, having the, the security of, uh, of a corporate career. Um, but then also having this creative outlet, like all of those things felt really necessary to keep me going. And, um, but that's not to say that in any way do I balance it healthily at all. I mean, I've barely <laughs> slept in the, in the past three days. My next manuscript is due, is due on June 1st. Oh. I don't, you know, I put on this cute shirt. You should see what's happening from the waist down. Like, <laughs> it's a mess. It's a mess. But I, I feel like if something is, is that important to you, then you treat it the way you treat breathing air. Like you just, you, you're uncompromising. You have to do it. You have to find the time and it'll all come together. Yeah. I like uncompromising. I like that. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Well, I mentioned some of your personal pieces, but one of our favorites is a Mother's Day letter that you wrote to your daughter that was published in Glamour in 2016. And it was called An Open Letter to My Seven-Year-Old Black Latina Daughter. I love reading stuff that you wrote back to you. Sorry, but just for everyone else, because everyone on the show hasn't read it. Um, but in it, you write, you have a big personality, Lena. You're hilarious, opinionated, and wicked creative. Don't make yourself smaller to get the basketball star, the class president, or the badass musician. Be the basketball star, the class president, or the badass musician. It's such great advice, first of all. But second of all, I feel the echoes of that in your writing. And since we're all still works in progress, I'd love to ask you, do you feel like your books have the same kind of important message about not being afraid of who we are? And do you think that's an important message for adult women to hear? Yeah. I mean, I think definitely. Um, why do I feel like I'm going to cry? I, that, that seven-year-old is 13 now. It's just it's <laughs> I was just the same thing. How's it going with Lena? 
<laughs> she's good. She's back there like playing Roblox with her friends and like screaming. And I'm so nervous that you're that you guys are going to hear her. But oh, um, she inspired Audrey in Seven Days in June. I mean, that's that's my daughter. Um, yeah, I feel like you know when I was growing up, I was definitely a weirdo. Um, there's not a lot of like black nerd representation <laughs> or like black weirdo representation. Like when I it was born in 1975, like you had the Cosby Show where everyone was perfect. You had you know like it just wasn't there wasn't a lot of us out there. So I always was felt really weird. Like my interests were incredibly niche and my sisters were even weirder than I was like <laughs> um like my sister was like it's my 10th birthday I want to have a science birthday party oh my god awesome. but the thing is is that my parents every little thing that we were interested in you know if it's Fosse this week next week it's the Kennedy curse then it's like just ran they would indulge everything that we were into and it wasn't until I grew, you know, I went to college and went away and met like a wider swath of people that I realized that that was not a universal experience. Yeah. Um, and also I feel like in a lot of black families or families of color, like you, parents tend to push you towards what will make, what will, just be a doctor or a lawyer, like whatever, mm -hmm. just make some like what we don't have time for you to go figure out how to be a writer in New York, like who, you know, and my family wasn't like that. They were like, you know, knock yourself out. You got straight A's, you, you know, you earn, you know, go follow your dreams. Um, and I try to get that across in my books too. Like there are always black people from all different walks of life because we are not a monolith. Um, always New York, because I feel like it's such a fascinating place where you go to re reinvent yourself and to become like what you always thought you would, what you always wanted to be, but couldn't be in our There's a line Virginia. that you wrote about that, that I like highlighted in the book, because I just thought it was so like spot on about just being able to like leave that past behind. Yeah. And no one ever I like, like a lot in that book. <laughs> oh, thank you. But it's true. Like I have friends who I don't know anything about who they were before they yeah. rolled up here at 22 after college, yeah. you know, and it's fine because none of us really want to talk about whatever it was <laughs> like, because now we're this and this is, um, in, I think that's really interesting. And I, and I just like to, um, sort of sing that individuality message from the rooftops. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and you do that so well, which is awesome. So Tia, we also wanted to ask you, since we have a lot of librarians tuning in tonight as part of the U.S. Book Show, can you tell us what role libraries played in your development as a reader and a writer? Were they important to you growing up? Oh, <laughs> libraries were everything. <laughs> they were everything. And I don't know if this is how it is with all libraries or maybe this was a fever dream, but like I would spend summer, we would spend summers with my grandmother, um, my grand, at my grandparents' house. My dad, our family was stationed in Germany. And during the summers we would go back home to DC and well, my parents stayed in Germany. And my grandma had all of these li library books from Hillcrest Heights Library in Maryland but they were hers. Like she told me that she 
if you paid a certain amount of money to the library, you could keep the book. Was she just telling me that? Or, <laughs> or is that a real thing? Because there were stamps in all her books. There was the like card that goes in it and everything. And I was like, oh my God, grandma bought all these books from the library. Now I'm looking back and I'm like, to take those books <laughs> you, may be hearing from, you may be hearing from the hillcrest library yes, exactly. that's right wow. your your fine is like fifty thousand dollars <laughs> you might need amnesty yeah might need amnesty i think that the, what do you call it when the time has run out to go after somebody that but that's where I first like sort of started understanding them. I was like, this, it's just, just something seems so glamorous and cool. Like, first of all, I love that you could see the dates and the stamp, like yeah. the, the dates of all the people that had taken it out is like, you know, history in the book and just having an unlimited supply of books to read. Like I would go to our library um, uh, and just, nerd out on everything. I remember the Dewey Decimal System. I remember, yes. um, you know, the microfiche and like copying <laughs> pages to take home and like study. And my sister was obsessed with soap operas. She only watched two of them. Mind you, she's like eight years old. Again, niche, you know, interest. <laughs> Which two? And she watched Guiding Light in General Hospital. Luke and Laura. Luke and Laura, I mean, what can you do? And, she, but she would go to the library and go to the periodical section, get all of the soap opera digests, like from the past two years, read up on all the other shows that she didn't watch, but because of her extensive research in soap operas digest at the library, she could write a dissertation on all my children, days, our lives, all that never that's seen amazing. an episode. But that's, that's what I did. Isn't that funny? And that's what I think of when I think of libraries, like just supporting whatever, like, you know, research and interest that you have and making you a smarter, more interesting person. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Absolutely. So well, Tia, thank you so much. I feel like we are all smarter, more interesting people for having talked to you tonight. This was so lovely. And thank you. Um, this was great. It really was. We're so glad we, that we managed to work out the connection issues. And Tia, I, I loved Seven J Days in June so much. Um, I listened to it on audiobook and I never realized how strange it was to listen to sex scenes on audio while you're driving on the highway until I listened to your book. But it was worth it because it was amazing. So to everyone out there, Seven Days so in June, it's out in paperback in two weeks. So you can get it in a hardcover now. You can listen to it on audiobook and be inappropriately listening to things <laughs> as you're driving along. Um, but no, it's amazing. And Tia, thank you so much for being with us tonight. It was such a pleasure to talk yeah, to you. Yeah, so much fun talking to you. Thank, thank you so much. You. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Bye. Best of luck. Night, Tia. All right. Now we are excited to welcome our second guest of this doubleheader, TJ Newman, another author who writes about strong, tough heroes and heroines, but in a completely different way. You know, we met T we met TJ at the Savannah Book Festival. Mm -hmm. TJ is Newman is a former bookseller turned flight attendant. She worked for Virgin Atlanta and Alaska Airlines from 2011 to 20, 2021. And she wrote most of her debut novel, Falling, 
on cross-country red-eye flights while her passengers were sleeping. And that's giving me anxiety right this minute. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how she did that. I was like, oh my gosh, I would never have been able to do that. But anyway, Good Morning America called Falling an unputdownable thriller. USA Today called it a rich and assured debut, and it received glowing recommendations from authors including James Patterson, Janet Ivanovich, and Diana Gabaldon, as well as starred reviews from Publishers Weekly, Booklist, and Library Journal. I wish she'd gotten some more like lifting. I know. Yeah. You know, maybe yeah. we can. No one really liked it. <laughs> so we loved meeting her at the Savannah Book Festival. And as a former independent bookstore own seller, TJ calls Phoenix, Arizona home now. Yeah, we're so excited to bring her on. Sean, can you bring Yay, TJ out? TJ. Hey, TJ. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Oh, it's so good to see you guys again. How are you? Good. Oh, it's good to We're see happy you. to see you. We're so glad you could come on. I'm so glad I could too. And I have to say for everybody that's that's watching, if you don't know these ladies in real life, I have to say that when I went to the Savannah Book Festival, it was my first book festival on, you know, being an author, being there. I didn't know a single soul that was there. I was very nervous. This is my debut novel. This is like, you know, publishing in a pandemic. You don't get to meet people. It's very, you know, isolating. It's just you in your house talking to Zoom. So this was my first like anything. And I was really nervous. And I have to tell you, these four ladies just immediately <laughs> took me under their wings and made me feel so welcome and so comfortable and I felt like I wasn't alone and they are as warm as in person <laughs> as they are here. And I just I just want to tell you how much that meant oh, to me. How well you so made me nice. feel at that event. Oh my God, oh. I'm tearing up. Thank you. Loved Thank you so much for saying you. that. Well it didn't it, we did. And it didn't hurt that we were huge fans of your book. So we were coming at you as fangirls. But can you start off by telling us a little bit about Falling, which just came out in paperback last week. Sure. Uh, Falling tells the story of Flight 416, a flight from Los Angeles to New York. And what the passengers on board don't know is that just before they took off, the family of their pilot was kidnapped. And he has been told that he can either crash the plane or his family will die. And so the story then follows the um, valiant, heroic efforts on the ground from the FBI and the family and the uh, the crew and the passengers in the air in their attempts to do the impossible. <laughs> it's amazing. It's it's such a great concept for a book. And we love to talk about the seeds of inspiration um, on this show, and especially for books like this. And, you know, as we said, this is so particularly interesting because you wrote it as a flight attendant, um, which I just cannot imagine, like, being up in the air and writing this book. I just can't believe that you did that. But um, I read in an interview with the New York Times that while you were formulating the idea for the book, you asked a pilot colleague of yours, what would you do if your family was kidnapped and you were told that if you didn't crash the plane, they would be killed? And that you knew by the look on his face that you had struck a nerve. And you told the Times he didn't have an answer and I knew I had a story. So can you talk to us a bit about how you came up with the idea and how you set up pursuing it? Yeah. Um, the um, What you just said was the story kind of of how it went down. The sort of moment that led up to that was... Um, I was working a flight because, as you said in my intro, I was a flight attendant for 10 years. Um, 
And I was working a flight and I was standing at the front of the aircraft doing a, um, a security procedure that we call blocking while the pilots are coming in and out of the bathroom. So I'm standing at the front of the plane and I'm staring out at the passengers and the flight was a red eye. Those were my favorite flights to work. Um, that's how I was able to write on the plane yeah. was, you know, I put everybody to sleep and then I went into the galley by myself <laughs> and got to work. Um, but yeah, so it was a red eye and everyone's asleep, you know it's dark and it's cold and I'm, I'm staring out at the passengers and I kind of have this thought that their lives, my life and, and my crewmates lives and all of our lives are in the hands of the pilots, which is fairly obvious, actually, that's not exactly a groundbreaking (laughs) thought, but it was the first time that I'd kind of considered the flip side of that, which which, you know, is, is with that much power and responsibility, how vulnerable does that make the pilots? And I just couldn't shake it. And a couple of days later, the sort of the, the, the concept had solidified into a concrete scenario. And that's when I, I threw it out to the captain that I was flying with on my next trip, who was a friend of mine. And I just threw that out. Like I, like I said, you know, what would you do? And by the look on his face, I, I, I knew that was it. I knew there was, I knew there was a story there because I could see that he was terrified. And once I realized that there wasn't a page in the manual to reference for the situation, that's when I knew I had to write the story to answer the question for myself. He didn't report you to the TSA. It's funny. Like, like I've discovered in this whole process of of publishing this book that apparently people don't think like pilots and flight attendants uh, do, which is that we're constantly thinking about what can go wrong. It's just, that's how we're trained to think so that in the unlikely event that something does go wrong, we're ready. We already know we've already sort of done like a dress rehearsal on our head of this is what I would do. This is what protocol says. This is what I would do under these circumstances. So it really didn't feel weird to be thinking that and asking those questions because that's what we do. What would you do if that's that's just sort of what we do? I love that you said unlikely event because I was like, and the unlikely event of a water landing. Location device is under your seat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have read that you were rejected by 41 agents before one bit, and then that agent went on to sell this book in a two book deal. For seven figures. And, you know, I think that's kind of a theme of tonight and something that we've been talking about is like, this is not always an easy road and you never really know what's going to happen. So can you talk a little bit about like that feeling in that moment of having just all of this rejection and sticking with it for so long and then emerging victorious? Like, what was that like? Well, even the moment leading to that moment was um, a story. So I'll, I'll, I'll share it quickly because it's, it's a good story too. Um, yes, 41 rejections, all of whom said no, um, which I'm sure all of us, if you're in this industry, you're used to rejection. You're yeah. used to hearing the tough answers. So, and you're also, everyone here I'm sure knows, like you feel them. Even if you yes. get used to it, yep. you still feel each and every one of them. So yeah. I was, I, it was a tough road, but I just kept going. And one day I was at my, um, one day I get a phone call from an unidentified LA number. And I, of course, you know, decline it, send it to voicemail. Cause you know, robocall someone, you know, a realtor, you know, just send it to voicemail. Your, your, your car, it's time to get your, 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 your car. warranty. 
Exactly. Yeah. They can leave a message and I'll delete it later if that's what they want. But you know, you just block, send, send to send a voicemail. So several days later, I'm at my parents' house eating dinner. My phone rings again, unidentified LA number. I don't think anything of it. Send it to voicemail. <laughs> then something kind of clicks and I'm like, I don't usually get LA numbers. That's kind of weird. Was that the same, didn't I? So then I go back and that's where I find the voicemails that I've missed <laughs> from the one agent who is showing any interest in anything, asking to see the complete manuscript. So of course I start freaking out because um, I've just blown it. I've sent this agent, you know, <laughs> voicemail twice. So I'm like, great. I, oh I had one shot and I just blew it. Um <laughs> So that I frantically like, you know, try to like compose myself and call back. Of course, it goes to voicemail, further reinforcing that I've completely blown my one opportunity. Um, and a couple days go by and I don't really hear. And the whole time it's that like, should I send an email? Should I, should I call again? Should I do, you know, what do I do? And I had a trip scheduled to go um, backpacking with a friend of mine, which would mean that we'd be, you know, for like a week in the wilderness with no cell phones completely non-contactable. So I call him and I say, Hey, you know, this is TJ Newman. Um, we're playing a little bit phone tag. Um, I just want to let you know that I'm going to be out of, you know, out of communication for a week. So if I don't hear from you by the end of the night, no worries. I'll circle back, you know, in a week when I'm out of the woods, just wanted to give you the heads up. He doesn't call back. <laughs> And from the airport, we drive up to Northern Arizona, check into our hotel because we're leaving the next morning, go out to dinner, driving back to the hotel, my phone rings and it's that LA number. And I'm like, now mind you, I haven't told my friend that I'm writing a book. I've told <laughs> really no one in my life that I'm writing a book and certainly not that I'm like trying to get it published and that I'm querying agents. So we're driving along, my phone rings, and I just pull the car over to the shoulder on, on the road. And it's dark. We're in the woods. My friend has no idea what's going on. She's just looking around like, what is happening? And I just throw the car in park and I go, this is going to be very strange, but I promise you I will explain everything, but I've got to take this call. And so she's like, okay. So she sits there. I take the call. We have this long conversation. Of course, I'm answering the phone. Me like, hi, this is TJ. And she's like, TJ. And I'm sounding all confident, talking about manuscripts and books and all this, you know, completely faking the whole thing because I'm like, the phone is like shaking in my hand. I'm so nervous. So we have this call. The call goes amazing. And it was just like that moment where you know that like something special just happened. And so I hang up the phone and it's just dead silent in the car. And she looks at me like, <laughs> what was that? And I, and I just turned to her and I go, I don't know for sure, but I think there's a really good chance my entire life just changed. And oh, so, wow. And it had. That's um, amazing. That oh my story. God. Yeah. Uh, I feel like you just echoed what Tia said, which is, yeah. I think people imagine that we write a book, get an agent, get a book. Like it's just this, this, this one rolls yeah. into the next. And we constantly, even after published, have to hang on to this belief that the story we're writing is the story we're supposed to be writing. And to hang on to that kind of flotation device or yeah. To use a, a, a camera. but how how did it feel to you to constantly be 
working on this and conceiving this whole plane crash scenario while you're flying. <laughs> while you're in the air. Like, in other words, did you feel more insecure on your flights as you delved deeper? Or did you, as you mentally went through the worst case scenario, you felt, how did it affect you in the air? Is like what I'm trying to ask. You know, it was a fascinating process in that I can't tell you how many times I would be stuck and I wouldn't know what comes next. And I would just be, you know, just roadblocked, not knowing how to proceed. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Standard operating procedure, right? Yeah, Yeah. And it was really fortunate that I got to... You know, I, I, I've described it before, and I think this really works in that, like, it felt like I was, like, writing a movie, but the set was already built, the costumes mm. were made, everybody <laughs> was cast and was, like, on set, ready to go every day. They just didn't have lines. We just didn't have a story. So because I was, like, every day in that environment, the yeah. story and the lines, like, sort of, like, came out of it. And I can't tell you how many times I, I would you know, be thinking about something in the back of my mind and a pilot that I would with was with would like say something just like randomly. And I would sort of stop and go, wait, what did you just say? Oh, and then awesome. I would be like, wait, so, so if this happens, then you're telling me that this would happen next. And the next thing I know, like my problem has been solved and I know exactly mm-hmm. where to go from there. We were talking about this on the stage in, um, I think it was Cuyahoga last, a couple weeks ago about when you commit to a story there are these, it's almost like these metal filaments and you're the magnet. Like if you're paying attention and listening to the pilot or listening to the passengers, sometimes, not always, but sometimes you get what you need if you're paying attention. I totally agree. And especially riding on the plane, like (laughs) a lot of people often ask like, how did you, like the characters, you know, how did you, and I'm like, I was just character studying all day long. All every day. Day. I bet. Flight attendants get paid to people watch. And I just sort of like <laughs> took it to the next level. Yeah. You love it. That's awesome. Okay. So TJ, this is your first novel. And the reception has been pretty amazing. Does that put pressure on you as you move towards your second novel? Um, and, you know, by the way, is there a second novel in the works? <laughs> yes, uh, yes and yes. Um, so w- when I was telling the story earlier and I said, you know, my friend didn't even know that I'd written a book, um, that was my MO with writing Falling. I um, I come from a long pedigree of failure and rejection before I decided to try my, my hand at this, pursuing this dream. I was pursuing another dream, which was um, that of being an actor in New York you know, my, my Broadway dreams. So I studied musical theater in college and then I moved to New York after that, which um, clearly since we're not discussing um, what show I'm in, you can guess how well that went. (laughs) It was not pretty. It was, it did not go well. And it found me moving back to Phoenix back um, in with my parents, you know, and then I'm doing the like, you know, mid twenties, what do I do with my life now routine? I'm back living in my childhood home without a job and I, without a future, what do I do? And um, my mom said, you know, changing hands bookstore, local Indie bookstore up the street is hiring. You should get a job there. And so I applied, got a job and fell in love. And that's kind of, you know, the, the first step back to 
where I am now. And that's when I started writing again. That's when I started being creative again. And I really do think that my time at that bookstore is what not only started getting me here in an active way, but brought me back to being the creative person that I knew that I was, that I'd sort of lost track of during my time in New York. And so I started writing there and started doing that. Why did I tell this story? What was the question again? I'm just like, (laughs) second novel, second novel, second novel. Oh, oh, I know where I'm going with this. That's why I was like, writing the secret. Right. It does relate. Bear with me. Bear with me. It's not my strong suit. When I started writing again at Changing Hands and I started writing stories, I didn't tell anybody. Nobody knew because my time in New York had shown me that like putting yourself out there in front of the world and out in front of your friends and family and saying, I'm taking a creative risk. If it doesn't pan out, it's really embarrassing. And I was very much still licking my wounds from my time in New York. So when I started being creative again, because I needed to nurture that part of myself, I did it very privately, very much just for myself. And when I left the bookstore to go fly, and then I had the idea for falling and I started writing that, I just kept with that whole theme. I didn't tell anyone. Nobody knew I was writing it. Nobody knew it was a dream. Nobody knew that I was doing anything. And by the time that I'd finished the draft, there was literally only a handful of people that knew that I was even doing it. Like really just my family because they were like close to staging interventions because they didn't know what I did, like locked up in my (laughs) home alone on my days off. Um, So nobody knew. So that was my MO. And that was the only way that I convinced myself to like keep taking risks. And sure, that chapter is terrible, but who cares? No one's ever going to read it. It's never going to leave your computer. So that was the only way that I convinced myself to just keep going. And once it was a full thing, then I just kept going and kept going and kept going to where we are now, which brings me back to your question, Mary Kay, writing the second book is not quite so secret. It's definitely (laughs) I'm not fooling anybody. It's it's very no. much a, a, a known thing, and there's expectations, and um, yeah, they're there. And I'm trying to get myself back to that place, and I'm working every day. And it's 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 one of those things where I just convince myself, um, I trick myself that I'm the only one that's going to read this, even if that's yeah. not the case at all. I think we all do that too. We yeah. do. Yeah. I know. I do. And, and I- And I honestly think the second book is the hardest because the first is the one that's been living inside of you for so long and that you just kind of have to get out on the page. And then the second one, you're just kind of starting from scratch again and, and facing all that doubt or all the expectation or, you know, all those, all those things that are sort of these stumbling blocks set up to make you feel like you might fail, but you won't. This is a, this first book was a great achievement. The second book is going to be too. And, um, and it's so neat to hear, especially because of, you know, what we value so much here on Friends in Fiction. It's so cool to hear that an independent bookstore played a role in your development yeah. as a writer. So we'll talk to you a little bit um, at the very end about um, the role libraries played. But TJ, if you wouldn't mind sticking around for a few minutes, we have a little bit more to talk about. But first, a few reminders from us. Have you bought your coffee from Charleston Coffee Roasters yet? We have, and we've so enjoyed partnering with them. So as a reminder, everyone in our Friends in Fiction community gets 20% off all bag coffee on their website with code coffee with friends. 
We hope that you'll use this code as the perfect excuse to try their brand new, just released aquarium blend. And tonight we picked the third of three winners of our three month coffee of the month subscription with Charleston Coffee Roasters. We gave one away in March and one away in April. And tonight's winner, drum roll, Patty. Drum roll. Thank you. So hoping you'd let me do it. Kate Voth of Ewing, New Jersey. Yay! Congratulations, Kate. Um, she was totally randomly picked earlier today, um, but you should follow her on Instagram. You probably know her from Bookapotamus. She has great bookish content. Um, and don't forget that we have this fabulous book and coffee bundles. You can get one of our books signed, paired with the coffee of your choice. So check them all out at charlestoncoffeeroasters.com. And to all of you who haven't tried their coffee yet, we hope you'll use that 20% off code um, to do just that. It's the coffee we drink in my house every day. And again, it's coffee with friends. And um, it's what we drink too. And I have to say how grateful I am to them because they help keep us on the air. Yes, they do. Their sponsorship. So don't forget to join us over on our cool new social platform. It's an app and it is called Fable, which if I was going to name an app book club, I would call it Fable. So this (laughs) month you can read Mary Kay's The Home Records along with the Fable community, which means this. You get exclusive access to behind the scenes stories, playlists, secrets, and more. You can share your reactions, thoughts, favorite quotes with us and with fellow readers as you read along and you gain access to special resources you can't find anywhere else. It is just $5 a month to join the friends and fiction behind the book club Or you can do an annual premium for $70 a year to join all the book clubs on Fable, including LeVar Burton. So visit fable.co instead of com backslash friends and fiction to sign up today. And just another quick reminder about our Writer's Block podcast. We'll always post links under announcements each time a new one drops. A new episode launches each Friday. On the last episode, Ron and Kristen talked to Jane Porter and Megan Crane about about prolific writers, friendship, and community in writing. On the episode dropping this Friday, (laughs) Ron and Christy talked to Joy Calloway about her novel, The Grand Design, about Dorothy Draper. And next week, Ron and Meg talked to Carter Bays, the co-creator of the wildly popular sitcom, How I Met Your Mother, about his debut novel, The Mutual Friend. And Meg has already said that's given her, already given her amazing street cred with with her kids. That's awesome. That is awesome, too. The Mutual Friend. I'm like, why didn't we think of that? Yeah, I know you have one oh. mutual friend. <laughs> I can't wait to hear that podcast. And it's how it's really cool that Meg did it with Ron. Um, yeah, I love that, it. that's not the norm for us, but she's so yeah. good. I mean, she did the pre-show tonight and um, I, I just know it was a great episode. So I, I can't wait to hear that. So we also want to give a shout out to the Friends and Fiction Official Book Club headed up by our friends, Brenda Gardner and Lisa Harrison. They recently hit 12 thousand members. We're so excited. And they'll be joining us on the after show tonight to celebrate and to let you know what they've got coming up in the club. Okay, TJ, I have one more thing I want to talk to you about. Because we have so many librarians tuning in tonight. Can you tell us about the impact of libraries and librarians on your life as a reader and as a writer? 
Oh, huge. I mean, I wouldn't be sitting here. I wouldn't be doing any of this without libraries. Um, I, my parents' house was the house I grew up in was right across the street from the Dobson Ranch branch of the Mesa Public Library. (laughs) You were across the street from the library? I I was walking distance. Walking distance. And it was just like, it was, it was everything. It was where, you know, I can remember going there with my parents when they were voting because it was also, you know, where we voted. Um, I can remember my first library card. It was bright yellow. And I remember signing my name on there so carefully. And the, 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 over the years, the, the, the pen ink, like blurred, <laughs> like all everything I can, a laundry list of just snapshots of images of how that library shaped who I became and what I was. It, even, you know, checking out CDs, it showed me the music that I liked and the magazines that my my parents wouldn't buy me that I could go read. And then, you know, the books, just everything. I can still walk there in my mind where in the oh, library, you know, what case to go down to get to the babysitter club. And then just, just seeing all the stacks of them. I mean, it's just, it made me the reader that I am, which made me the person that I am, which now is my livelihood and the way that I feel fulfilled as a person. Uh, we have the think. right people, this question. Tonight. I know. I, know. I just want to awesome. say, I cannot think of a better way to end the episode. So TJ, we all, we just all adore you. We had such a great time with you in Savannah. We're so happy for the success you found with this novel. And we're so excited that people can get their hands on it right now in paperback. It's a great book. We recommend it to everyone. And we are so grateful that you joined us tonight. Thank you so much, TJ. Absolute pleasure. Thank you guys. This was truly lovely. And I can't wait for the next time we all get to get together. I can't wait. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So we'll say see you soon, TJ. All right. Good night. Now to all of you out there, don't forget that you can find all of our back episodes on YouTube. We are live there every week, just like we are on Facebook. And if you subscribe to our YouTube channel, you will not miss a thing. Plus you will have access to special short clips. Make sure to stick around for the after show where we will be chatting with Brenda and Lisa from our book club. And we will also be giving you a little sneak preview of our new novels coming in 2023. Be sure to come back next week, same time, same place, as we welcome Sarah McCoy, Chanel Clayton, and Christina Lauren in the after show. We'll see you in a minute. See you in a minute. All right, everybody. Welcome back. Ladies, what a night. Weren't they just great guests? Oh, my gosh. They were such great guests. These are such great books, and it's awesome. I feel like I want to write down a lot of what they said. Yeah. I, I feel like they just kind of, you know... It yeah. was like the hinges. The hinges. Yeah, that word. That word. That word. <laughs> you know, it, it almost makes yeah. me wish we'd had them on together because I think that me um too. E- yeah. you know, even even with, yeah. with the different kinds of books and different way, you know, different backgrounds that they came at writing from, I, I just think there was so much overlap in the kind of women they are and the way they persevered against the odds and, you know, and, and didn't listen to the voices that said, no, they just said, no, I'm going to do it. This is my dream. This is who I am. And I love that. I I feel very, those are the writers that inspire me. That's just, yeah. I really wanted to ask Tia for some beauty tips, but I guess that would have been, I did too. I was looking at her the whole time. Like, "Mm, can you come over here and like do something with me? I mean, well, 
And when she said she was born in 1975, I was like, shut the front door. Like, come on. (laughs) She looks so good. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I I could absolutely benefit from her beauty tips. So (laughs) two ladies who don't need to benefit from beauty tips because they are so beautiful to begin with are Lisa and Brenda who run our Friends in Fiction official book club. And I know they're hanging out backstage and we can't wait to talk to them. So Sean, would you mind bringing Lisa and Brenda on? Hi, Hi, ladies. Hello. Hey. See you. Hey, guys. So, Brenda, are you in the car? I am in the car. <laughs> You're not driving, though, right? No, I'm. <laughs> no, I'm parked. I had uh, a work event, so I just finished, and I'm joining you from the car. Oh my gosh, we love it. Such dedication. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like our lives. It really does. Well, you know, ladies, huge congratulations on hitting 12,000 members. Can you even believe it? No. Awesome. No, no. I can't even imagine that first conversation we had ending up in 12,000. No. Well, we are we are just so grateful and so proud of you two. You've done such a phenomenal job with this book club. Brenda, can you tell us a little bit about what the book club is for those watching who may not know? Sure, I'd be happy to. The book club is uh, a once a month session where we read, we, we all read a book together each month and then we bring the author on a Zoom call with us and Facebook Live it so that all of our members can enjoy the conversation with the author and have an opportunity to ask questions in advance and live in the chat. And so it's just a little bit, it's an in-depth look at each book by, of course, you wonderful ladies. And then we've expanded it to some other authors as well. Hmm. Awesome. I love, I love, just real quick, I was going to say, I love that the last 15 minutes of the chat is, um, is like a spoiler zone, right? So for people who have read the book, and I think you don't find that a lot on these online um, online book talks, you know, because like usually they're spoiler free, but, you know, which is for the purpose of, you know, if, you, if we haven't all read it, but I like that you divide your chat so that people can stick around until the spoilers begin happening. And then you really dive deep and you talk about the ending. And I, I, it's, I just think it's a unique experience. Well, thank you. I love as an author being able to talk about spoilers because we get to do that so infrequently where I was like dancing around things and just really be like, <laughs> go all in, you know. Um, but Lisa, what is the book club up to this month? Well, we just had a fabulous discussion with Wiley Cash last week. Oh. So if you guys missed it, you can check it out on our YouTube page because we are now on YouTube as well. But coming up this month, we're reading an amazing book that has just been hanging out on the New York Times list. <laughs> you might have heard of it. I think you've heard of it. It's called <laughs> Oh, what is that about? That sounds really interesting. I haven't heard of that book yet, but I'll have to check it out. I think it's about a homebreaker. I think it's about a home. I love it. It's awesome. Okay, Brenda, what do we have coming up over the next months. Oh, we have some awesome books coming up. For July, we're reading Book Lovers, and on July 18th, we'll be talking with Emily Henry about it. In August, we're going to be reading The Younger Wife with Sally Hepworth. That's August 15th. And September 19th, we're doing The Book of Eleanor Dare with Kimberly Brock. So we have some awesome books ahead of us in the next few months. 
Well, we also have you... an awesome happy hour with Ron Block in August too, on August nineteenth. Yeah, you don't want to miss those happy hours, doll. Those are no, you get drink recipes. Mm-hmm. You get drink recipes, and they're going to make a cocktail book because I told them to. And then, <laughs> then you get. I named you PB and J so I can say there's a cocktail book, and then <laughs> and then you get to um, hear book recommendations from the three of them and whoever their guest is, and you know all of them get um, advanced reader copies and can just lay down some great book recs for the rest of the month. I know, but can we go back to the cocktail thing? Because Lisa at Lisa Gets Lit has a double meaning. (laughs) It really does. All right. It really does. Brenda and Lisa, I can't wait to join you and the book club and talk about the homewreckers. Mm -hmm. Oh, we can't wait either. Looking forward to it. Yeah, we're so looking forward to it, but Speaking of things we're looking forward to, with being with the four of you, Brenda and I always want to get the scoop. So (laughs) we want to know what you guys are up to next year. So Christy, can you tell us about your book coming out in April? Yes, I'm so excited. Um, It's called The Summer of Songbirds. I've been pestering these ladies with cover options this week, so I can't wait to show everyone. It's not a pester. We love weighing in. We all love our here are these 11 shades of font color. Now they're all almost exactly the same, but let's deep dive. And we do. We we dive with pleasure, Christy. We dive. (laughs) We discuss. It's it's fake. But the book is called The Summer of Songbirds, and it is about three best friends who met at a summer camp that um, is in danger of closing. And so they band together and decide that they're going to save their summer camp. Um, but at the same time, uh, Daphne, who is one of our protagonists is an attorney and she finds out something um, about her best friend Lanier's fiance that is protected by attorney client privilege. And so she has to decide whether she is going to tell her best friend and um, get disbarred. She's a single mother. So it's a really big decision, even bigger than normal, maybe. Um, or if she's going to let um, Lanier, who is her best friend, marry this man, um, knowing what she knows about him. But Lanier has a secret of her own that if Daphne finds out, which maybe she does, maybe she doesn't, I can't really say, um, would change the way that she felt about the entire thing. <laughs> You've already figured out how to talk about it. I know, I'm impressed. I know. <laughs> I have not figured out how to talk about it yet, so I'm going to try. Mine comes out on May 9th, and it May 9th of next year, obviously, 2023. And it is called The Secret Book of Flora Leah. And guess what? That is the first time I've been allowed to say the title. So May 9th, The Secret Book of Flora Leah comes out. It is about a secret story world created by two sisters named Hazel and Flora. And that secret fairy tale solves the mystery of the youngest sister's disappearance from the countryside of Oxford, England in 1940. And I have so much more to say, but Kristen, how about you? (laughs) Well, I think three or four weeks after your book, Patty, my book will come out. I think I'm early June um, and it's called The Paris Daughter. I love that we're April, May, June. I I think that's perfect. So I'm so excited. It's the story of, you know, and I also haven't totally figured out my my pitch yet, 
um, I think, you know, it takes reading it 5 million times through copy editing. Yeah. Like, oh, that's what it's about. And that's what it's about. Now, I'm not totally through yet, but um, it's the story of two mothers and two daughters in World War II Paris, an allied bomb that falls where it shouldn't in a residential Paris suburb on a sunny Sunday and a mystery that kicks off when not all of the people in a picturesque French bookstore survived the blast. And then the story picks up in New York City in 1960, when a chance encounter with one of the mothers of those two daughters sets the question of what happened that tragic day spinning back <laughs> into motion again. So um, so that's kind of the short little elevator pitch for the Paris daughter. And um, how about you, Mary Kay? Do you have anything on tap for 2023? I, you know, usually I have a summer book, <coughs> but I won't have a summer book in 2023. How is summer going to begin? Yes, summer won't ever start in 2023. <laughs> I mean, we, the three of us have spring and summer books, but summer's actually not going to start. I don't know what it is. It will start with the paperback <laughs> of the home records. Okay. okay. Summer's, okay Thank goodness. Fair. Thank you for clearing that up. Start with home, yeah, I will start in... Um, Late April of 2023, it will start with the paperback of the home records. Then we will flash forward to late September with uh, another Christmas novella that I am not am still working on it. The title is what we in publishing call TK, <laughs> which means to come. Well, why do we use the word K for come? I, I don't I, I, I don't I, make these rules, Patty. I, I just I, I've never understood that. I, I, I can explain it because in journalism, please. if you plug in a TK, yeah, that's a very uncommon letter combination. Right, so right, right. For document for TK, but if you searched a document for TC, a lot of words would come up. So TK oh, is something that'll just bring up gosh. the blanks. Yep. Yeah. So the title is the title is TK, but it starts in the same fictional North Carolina mountain time as the Santa suit. But this time the story involves a woman whose family owns a Christmas tree farm. And they have for the past 30 years, they have cut their trees in November and trucked them up to a Christmas tree stand in Greenwich village where they sell Christmas trees. And this year, your protagonist, Carrie, gets um, guilt-tripped into going along to sell trees and finds holiday love and all the things in Greenwich Village. So exciting. Uh, you write such a good not... summary that I feel like I read the book. Like, I'm so excited. I know. I'm so excited <laughs> for this one. Well, you know, we are so excited. I, I know we'll all join the book club next year to talk about these books. Um you know, I, I, Brenda and Lisa, you're so kind to always host us and, and you know, give readers kind of the behind the scenes version of our books. And, you know, I, I was thinking in the pre-show, um, Andrew and Meg and Ron were talking about how that road kind of goes both both ways. It's, you know, it, it's the readers to the writers and the writers to the readers. And, you know, and I think nowhere is that better exemplified than in our relationship with the two of you. I mean, I, I think the two of you began as readers of us and, and, and supporters of us, and you've become 
two of our dear friends. You've become part, I mean, such an integral part of our community. You've done such incredible work with the book club. Um, and, and you've, in addition to the direct connection we have with readers through friends and fiction, I think the two of you are really for us and, and for all the authors you feature a real pipeline between the readers and the writers you just, you're such an incredible part of this community and, and we're so grateful to you. So, um, so congratulations, congratulations on the continued success of the book club. Congratulations on 12,000. Um, thank you so thank much. You. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so for everything well. you do. Well, we feel so deeply lucky and thankful to be working with you. So well, we you. are lucky. We're the lucky ones. We adore you guys so much. So thank you Can't for wait. letting us. The party. Yeah, exactly. I can't wait to talk to you guys about the homewreckers. I know it's going to be so much fun. I cannot wait. I think wait I'm going to make a homewrecker cocktail. I wore my I wore a oh, homewrecker dress to your launch party, oh, but I know I'm you do. I think we've talked about at every event how you guys are an example of at friends and fiction don't volunteer like unless you want to be left in charge of this like monstrous project that will like consume a large portion of your life. So you guys are like the cautionary tale, slash amazing example that we use. Yeah. I'll be careful. With <laughs> so to all of you out there, consider that your warning. And don't forget to join the Friends in Fiction official book club if you haven't already. As you can tell, um, they just are doing such amazing things over there. So everybody, this has been such a great night. And we will see you next week. Same time, same place, Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, as we welcome Sarah McCoy, Chanel Clayton, and Christina Lauren. Have a great night, everybody. Night, Happy everybody. Memorial Day weekend. Good night. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.